Happy Sabbath. It's good to be in the house of God. Amen? God is doing some wonderful things, right? And uh, I really love church service. You know why I love church service? Because it's a time for us to be able to dress up and to show our best to each other. Amen? Because that's what church is all about. Now, the time of church is a special time where God's people come together to worship the Lord in majesty and sincerity, to bring before God our hearts and to give Him our love. The time of worship is a very special time, and it's encompassed in the Sabbath. And I love the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a wonderful time where God pours out His blessings in such special ways. You know, Saturday morning, when you wake up, you wake up with this, just this immediate feeling that it's the Sabbath day. There's just something special. This feeling hits you. It's a very warm feeling, and it hits you, and it just reminds you that this day is special to God. The Sabbath shows us that God values time. He values time over things. He values relationships over materialism. The Sabbath is a special time where God wants to bless us in tremendous ways. Amen? Why don't we begin with the word of prayer and let's ask Jesus to bless us with his Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, right now we just want to take a moment of silence to pray. God, we've been told that this is also a special day of praying and fasting for those who are part of this Ebola crisis. We thank you, Lord, that you've laid this burden upon our uh, general conference leaders. So right now we just want to pause in this moment to pray for those that are affected by this Ebola crisis. And Father, we just thank you so much for hearing our prayer. Right now we ask for the present blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to be talking about some interesting things. Yesterday we talked about talents, right? We talked about committing your talents to God. We talked about using your talents for God and asking God to multiply your talents as he continues to give you more and more opportunity. You know what's so interesting? In having uh, uh, spoken in different parts of the world, I come across a lot of people who come from various backgrounds, various cultures. And my life is sort of something that's an enigma. I am, you know, I was born in Southern California. I, my parents come from India. And, uh, you know, I was born and raised a Hindu, but then I became a Christian. And so I'm sort of like have my hands in everything or I come from everything. And it's oftentimes that I'm able to kind of use this background to reach people from a variety of, you know, cultures and backgrounds. You know, one of my good friends, he did some missionary work in another country where there was a lot of refugees from Iran. And he told me this incredible story one day. He told me how he was at this camp doing some witnessing, some ministering over there, and he heard that there was a man who was apparently uh, given some kind of divine dream. And in this dream, God told him about the Sabbath day. And so my friend found out about it. He says, where does this guy live? He found out where he was in this refugee camp, and he knocked on his door. And so the man opened up the door. He was a, a Iranian man, and he let him in, and they sat down. And so my friend begins to ask him, so what took place in this dream? 
And so the man begins to share, yes, I had this dream, and in this dream, God showed me that I needed to start keeping the fourth commandment and that he would continue to reveal more and more truth to me as I was faithful. And my, the whole time, my friends, they're just sitting there just blown away until my friend, who happens to be a clean freak, notices some giant rats running along the, just our part of the house. He notices them on one of the rafters, and they're just like running back and forth like they're in some kind of, uh, you know, uh, Ford factory. And they're just like, he's watching it, and he starts getting distracted by all these rats that are just sort of popping up out of nowhere, running across. And it was the Sabbath. And so there he was, and he's just listening, but he's getting distracted by these huge rats. And the man notices my friend is being distracted. And he says to him, you see these rats here? I hate them. He's like, every day I kill them. But on Sabbath, I don't kill them. As soon as Sabbath comes and is over, I kill them again. And it was so interesting because this man uh, was doing the best that he could with the light that God had given to him. But step by step, God wanted him uh, to know more. And there's a lot of people who've been given the baton. And it's very important for us that we who've been given this beautiful light bring the next step. We bring the next picture, the next component that will help people have a better understanding of who God is. Can you say amen to that? And what we're going to be learning about today is how we can have power to do these kinds of things, things that God has called us to do. All right, I wish these screens were a little bit tilted this way. It's all right. Very good. All right, everybody take your Bible. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at a very familiar story in the Bible. And Matthew 17 starts with the Mount of Transfiguration. It was a special time where, I really hope I don't fall off this thing. Okay, it was a special time where God really spoke to his people. Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And do you know who else was there? Moses and who? Elijah. And you know, that's such a beautiful picture when you begin to think about it. Because Moses was on top of the mountain during his experience. And Elijah was on top of the mountain during his experience. But do you know when those two patriarchs were on top of the mountain? It was at some of the darkest moments in their life. Moses had gone up to the mountain after the children of Israel had rebelled. Elijah went up to the mountain when he was fearful because of what Jezebel did. And both these two people also had something else in common. They asked God to do things for them that God did not do. Moses prayed, God lead me into the holy land. And because of his sin, God said, I can't answer your prayer. And it was because God could not answer his prayer that God actually put Moses to sleep, resurrected him, and took him to a greater land. Amen? And do you remember the story of Elijah when he was on that mountain? Elijah prayed, God, let me die. Let me die. Now just think about it. Did God answer his prayers? Did Elijah ever die? He never died. You know, sometimes we're praising God for answered prayers. Sometimes we ought to praise God for unanswered prayers. Amen? 
Now, how many of you can think to, back to yourself and think, wow, if there were these certain things that I had prayed and pleaded for God to do, I probably would not be here today. Right? I'm sure everybody here could uh, say, think of something. Now, just think about it. These two experienced mountain climbers were on top of the mountain with Jesus. And these two individuals began to share with Jesus. And had the disciples been awake during that time, instead of sleeping, they would have understood what was being said, and they would have written about it, and we would have had an account. But instead, all we're told in the Gospel of Luke is that they spoke of his decease. And it was during a time where Peter was getting fuzzy, and all the other disciples were getting fuzzy on top of the mountain. At the very moment... They should have been listening. They could have heard some of the most beautiful expressions of comfort. And at the same time, they should have been listening in the Garden of Gethsemane. They could have seen and understood more of what Jesus was going through. But they were sleeping at the most pivotal moments. The most pivotal moments. And now here they are on top of the mountain. And all we're told is that they spoke of his decease. These two people were sent to comfort Jesus. The very Now this is so interesting when you think about it. Jesus was comforting them during their mountaintop experiences, and now here they are, they are returning the favor. They're comforting Jesus, and they're speaking to him about his decease, encouraging him to keep going forward. In fact, Moses and Elijah would not be allowed in heaven any longer if Jesus did not go to the cross and die. And so their very um, you could say their very place in heaven was guaranteed by Jesus going forward. And so there was a lot that was at stake here. And right after this incredible mountaintop experiences, the disciples come down with Jesus, and there they notice an altercation taking place. And as they get closer and closer to the altercation, look what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. If you're there, go ahead and say Amen. Go all the way to verse 14. Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the waters. So I brought him to your disciples. And the man, when he said that, some of the other disciples that didn't go on top of the mountain were right there. So the man says, I brought him to your disciples but they could not cure him. In other words, they didn't have power to do ministry. Now what is so unusual is that the last time these disciples were sent out to do ministry, they were casting out demons. They were casting out like the devils. And they even told Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us through your name. And now here's an experience where they have failed at ministry. They have utterly failed at ministry, and they don't know what to say. The Bible doesn't say anything they said because they didn't have anything to say. What could you say when you mess up? And so there they were, looking around. And now notice what Jesus says next. Verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very, what? Hour. In fact, when you read some other Gospels, there's a little bit more detail. When Jesus talks about to the man, he says, when did this happen? 
And the man says, ever since he was a young child, the demon entered into him, and it was just messing him up. He would foam at the mouth. He would have seizures. He would throw himself into the fire, throw himself into the water. He was trying to destroy himself. And the man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, please help us. Now, you know what's so interesting about the word if? The word if implies doubt in question. It implies a doubt. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus turns it right back to him and he says, if I can do anything, if you can believe. He throws it right back to him and he's like, look, you're questioning whether or not I can do anything. The real question is, do you really believe? That is the essential question here. He throws it right back to the man and he says, do you really believe? You know, oftentimes in our experience, there's something that slips out. And we're not even aware of it. It's so imperceptible. It's so invisible that many times we don't even realize it's gone. And that is faith. Oftentimes we're like, I have faith. And for an experience, we, have, we may have faith for a certain time. But then what happens? Faith begins to slip out because of our own ability or our own capabilities. And we start going about the work of God until one day we are just slammed. We hit a wall and we're just like, what happened? And we didn't even realize that that faith had left our experience. If you were just to break down faith in its most essential, simplest term, it simply means expectation. Expectation. That God will help, that God will bless. And oftentimes the expectation gets out of our experience. And we're like, really? I don't have faith? And we're quite surprised because it has left. And we didn't even realize it. So in this experience, Jesus cures the man. But watch what happens next. This is amazing. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. They were quite embarrassed. They had failed in ministry. And so they went to Jesus. They say, Lord, can we talk to you in private? And they say, why could we not cast out these demons? And do you know what Jesus says to them? He says, because of your unbelief. But assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you shall say to this, what? Mountain. Now let me ask you a question. What mountain would Jesus would be referring to? The only mountain they just came down off. He says, if you have faith like this, like as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain be removed, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible for you. And then Jesus adds a caveat, and he says, except this kind doesn't come out without prayer and fasting. Now think about this, okay? When could the disciples have fasted? When would they have had time to fast? They're like, the man brought them just a few minutes prior to the disciples. They couldn't cast it out. They didn't say, hold on a second, we'll come back tomorrow because we're going to go fast about this. But Jesus said, you can't cast this kind out without fasting. But when could they have fasted? Unless Jesus was referring to something else. You see, there was a bigger problem than that demon. There was a bigger problem than that demon. You know what it was? It was their faithlessness. And do you know what happened when their faith slipped out? It took place when they saw the other disciples going up on the mountain with Jesus, and they themselves not going up, they begin to really produce jealousy in their heart. And they begin to entertain these thoughts. And then what took place is that faith left their experience. Then when they went into that conflict, all of a sudden they were defeated. 
And you know what they should have done? As soon as they began to recognize, hey, there's problems in my heart right now. I sense self rising up. You know what they should have done? They said, it is a time to fast. And so when Jesus was pointing to that mountain, he was essentially saying, the mountain of jealousy that's in your heart. That's the real issue. You know what's so interesting about prayer and fasting? Prayer and fasting gives us power in ministry. Amen? And we need more power in ministry. You know, when I first began to pray, my prayers would start off like this. Every night, Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Amen. And I'd make sure every single night I'd pray that prayer. I didn't want to talk to the Lord, but I just wanted to make sure I was forgiven. Insurance. And that's what I did. Every single night. I never forgot my friend began to tell me, hey, you need to close your eyes when I would have prayer. And so sometimes when I'd be driving a car, and I'd be like, it's time for me to pray. I'd close my eyes. Lord, help us open my eyes. And it was a very dangerous kind of driving. Driving and praying. I'd close my eyes. And you know what? It was such a journey for me. It was such a struggle to learn how to pray. Prayer is to be a struggle. Do you know the disciples that had walked a few years with Jesus still ask Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because they did not understand how to really pray, how to really have a prayer life. And do you know there is a difference between a person who prays and a prayerful person? There's a big difference. A person who prays, prays when it's convenient. But a prayerful person is a person who is constantly saturated in prayer. Do you know I have a good friend? She's a mentor. She lives down in Southern California. And we will be talking in our conversations. And when it's time to pray, you know what she always starts off her prayer with? And Lord, please be with us right now as we begin to pray. And every time she'll be like, and Lord, thank you for hearing this conversation. And she always begins with the word and. And I always thought to myself, what is she doing? And what I begin to realize is that while we were talking, she would be having an attitude of prayer. And so when it came time to pray, it wasn't as if prayer had started, was about to start. Prayer had already started. Here are a few tips for you when it comes to prayers that will really help you. Number one, a prayerful life consists of both public prayers and personal prayers. Amen? A prayerful person has public prayers. In other words, they're praying with people and they have a personal prayer life. Number two, this is one of the best pieces of advice I can give you. Do not make public prayers long. Amen? If you're praying over a minute with some people, and I have seen this over and over again at prayer meeting, I tell this one person, and by the way, I hope this is not streaming live. I tell this one person, hey, everybody, I'll say this over and over again at prayer meeting, no long prayers. It wears out the saints. And what happens is that this person will intentionally pray Long, 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 long. Do you know what Ellen White calls long prayers? She calls them conference killers. Conference killers. Why? Because when someone is praying for a long period of time, you know what starts happening with the rest of the group? They start sort of doing this. And they look like Hindus that are worshiping Shiva. Because they're starting to doze off. They're having a hard time concentrating. For me, when people start praying for long periods of time, like two, three, four, five minutes, and it's just a new prayer group, what I'll do is I'll find something like this. (laughs) 
Sometimes I'll bring a pillow with me. If there's a pew, I lay down on the pew. And you see this taking place over and over again. But what happens when you make short, beautiful prayers in public prayers, you're going to be so blown away because other people are going to be encouraged to pray. And I really want to challenge you on this. If you have a prayer group, start praying short prayers. Short prayers doesn't mean that it's insincere. Or short prayers don't mean that it's not legitimate. Short prayers simply mean that you're praying sincerely, but you're keeping them simple and direct. And we need to learn to do this. We would have more people praying in prayer meeting and in prayer groups if we learn to pray in a way that invites others to pray. Amen? And if you read the councils on this, she talked about this over and over and over and over again. The other thing I can tell you when it comes to prayers is this. Don't rebuke people in your prayers that are present in the prayer group. God, please forgive Pastor Anel for his sins against us. Lord, help so-and-so with their struggling. If the one time you have to rebuke somebody in your prayer group, it should be rebuking somebody for praying long prayers. Lord, forgive that person for praying for two hours straight. That should be the only time. But you know what's so exciting is that when you begin to enter into a prayer group, it's going to be really interesting when you begin to learn to pray. And when you pray with the same people, you're going to find other people are going to start praying. You know, we had a prayer meeting, and I was like, okay, prayer meeting, it's exciting. Now, we have a church attendance, probably about three to 400 every Sabbath at this particular church I pastor up. And we didn't have prayer meeting for the longest time. Then I was convicted when I read a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy that prayer is the pulse of the church. And I was like, all right, we're going to see how alive our church really is. Five people showed up for prayer meeting. Five. Now you think, well, that's still good. But five out of 300 is not good. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe the church is somewhere between death and life right now. You know, the pulse of someone's life also is if they can attend prayer meeting too. It is the time for God's people to come together and corporately commune with the God of heaven and earth. So you know what we begin to pray in our prayer meeting? We begin to pray, Lord, start bringing people here who need to pray. And it was so amazing because now we started to have 20 people, 30 people that begin to pray together. And we were just praying and asking God to bless us in tremendous ways. And God is doing amazing things. At our church plant, Tuesday, before I came here, we had our very first prayer meeting at our little church plant. And it was so wonderful because you had some children that showed up and some other people that showed up. And it was really wonderful because I told the people, if we are having a prayer meeting, you know what that's telling us about our church? There's a pulse. And if there's a pulse, do you know what that means? There's life. Spiritual life. Ladies and gentlemen, I really want to encourage you to learn to pray together and learn to pray personally. Another thing is fasting. Fasting. You know, fasting is very important. There's different kinds of fasts in the Bible. Did you know when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel goes on a simple fast for three weeks. Three weeks. He talks about no, nothing really strong entering into his body. Other people, they would fast a whole day. Jesus fasted 40 days. Fasting is a time that doesn't call God down to us. It calls us up to God. And this is so amazing. I've been really challenging people to start fasting. One of my good friends, he came back from this missionary tour. He was looking for a job in the U.S., tried for two or three weeks, to, and he had no, no success. So I told him, I said, why don't you take a whole day to fast? 
And he's so sensitive. He's like, I'll try. And I was like, man, you need to do it. So he fasted, okay? He calls me in the middle of the day. He's like, okay, I skipped breakfast. That's all I could do. He's like, my blood sugar went down. And I'm like, what do you mean your blood sugar went down? He's like, I got tired. I'm like, so does everybody else when they fast. And here's the thing. But what's so amazing is that when he started to fast, the very next day he gets a call from the Washington Conference for a job. One of my other friends, she graduated with a nursing degree. She was looking for a job for a whole month, putting applications everywhere, 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 everywhere. And I challenged her, take the Sabbath to fast. And so she fasts on the Sabbath. The very next day she gets a call to work as a nurse at this particular place. I never forgot when I was canvassing. I was doing call porting, seven books a day. I had all the other, you know, people making like 10, 15 books. And I was like, God, I need some power here. So I said, Lord, I'm going to fast for a day. And let me tell you something. When you're selling books and you're fasting, you're not the happiest person all the time. But I fasted that day. I said, Lord, I'm going to fast. And so I fasted. The very next day, I got 24 books out. 24 books. And God began to reveal, I can do amazing things. You know what's so interesting about fasting is that when you take a day to fast, uh, the best things to do is that on the times that you're, at the times you're supposed to be eating, take those times to pray. In other words, one of the best ways to know it's time to pray is when your stomach's like blah, 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 blah. And that should be a sign to you like, oh, the alarm's going off, I need to go pray. And you take those times to pray in those hunger moments. And what begins to take place is incredible things because God will bless you. Amen? Jesus says this kind does not come out except by fasting and prayer. Ellen White says these amazing words, and I quote this word for word. She says, fasting one day a week will be of incalculable benefits. Incalculable benefits. Those are her words. And for somebody who's about 200 pounds who likes to work out, fasting isn't the easiest thing. But that's the thing about fasting. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be a time where I am supposed to supplicate the throne of God and bring before God the gnawings and the hunger pains and the denial of appetite and asking Jesus to search my heart, to give me a clear mind, to understand the scriptures. And you watch. You'll see God do amazing things. You know, I had a very interesting experience. I one day wanted to understand more about Bible prophecy. I knew Jesus was going to come back. I had been Adventist for about two years. And I thought to myself, man, I wonder what is going to be the great catalyst for the church that's really going to wake it up and get it so excited about doing ministry. And so I began to go during the potluck. You know, I, remember, I don't remember a single sermon, but I remember potlucks. I went to one potluck person, and I asked him, I said, so what do you think is going to wake up the church to get the gospel going to the ends of the world? Because that's when Jesus comes back, when the gospel is preached everywhere. And you know what she says to me? This was her response. She put her hand on the table like this. And she says, when the pastor gets off his behind and starts preaching. And I thought, I wonder if the great controversy revolves around this issue. Like this is what's going to bring the end time in is when the pastor gets off his behind. It's just when you begin to think about these great themes, you don't see something like, man, the church is finally going to be awakened when pastors get off their behind. And then I went to somebody else. And I said, so what do you think is going to be the great catalyst that's going to awaken the church? And you know what this person told me? She says, when they start preaching the straight truth, 
Now, what she was referring to was the straight testimony. But what she thought the straight truth was, was preaching sermons that would rebuke people for every one of their sins. Now, we are called, uh, we are called to call sin by its right name. Amen? And we should. We should love the things that God loves, and we should hate the things that God hates. That's what Ellen White says. That's my new mantra. Hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. And so she says, we need the straight truth. But when you begin to study the straight testimony, what you actually find, it's a call to repentance. It's the Laodicean message and a call to repentance for God's people to humble themselves and to begin to pray and fast, seeking for the Holy Spirit. But then when she began to say all these things like, we need sermons that are just going to really do this, I thought to myself, something's not right about this. Another person told me this. They said, you want to know what's finally going to waken God's people up to the truth? I said, what's that? When you get rid of all the drums and rock music in the church. And I thought, yeah, there are issues that we need to deal with. No question about it. But here's the thing. When you look at just like the great convergence upon what's really going to awaken people up in the church, none of those things seem to satisfy. None of those things seem to really do it. And I thought to myself, what is the real issue? And God began to share the real issue with me one day. You see, I'd gone to India with some people to do a mission trip. Some of you have heard this story. In fact, Danny Knob, she was with me in this trip as well. I had other students that were there. We went on this mission trip to India. It was a powerful, you know, 10 days that we were there. God was blessing. I was preaching at night. And as I was preaching at night, just wonderful things were taking place. Uh, the other students were preaching during the days. Wonderful things were taking place. The Spirit of God was moving. Then all of a sudden, one night after we were done preaching, we went back to the president's house, and we sat down and ate dinner with him, the president of the school. And while we were sitting down eating with him, all of a sudden he gets this phone call. He's like, yeah, okay, 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 I'll be there. And then he takes off. I talked to him later that evening. I'm like, what happened? And he says these words. He said, when the sermon was done and all the students went back to their apartment, their dorms, one of the girls became demon possessed. She got on all fours, was barking like a dog. She was kicking people off her. She was talking like this really old man, growling. Nobody can control her. So I went over there and we dealt with it. You know, in the Indian culture, they're not like Pentecostal. La, 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 Pentecostal and cast out demons. They're like, okay, you're out. In the name of Jesus. And then they move on. Next person. And so like, so he told me that. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It happened the year prior when I went to India. And then he says this to me. He said, by the way, one more thing. The demon said that it will come back again. And he went like this. And then he walked away. I'm like, hey, Dr. Doss, when it happens, why don't you bring me? And I thought to myself, it's probably not going to happen, okay? Two days later when I was preaching, done preaching, went back to the president's house with all the other uh, team members that I had. And all of a sudden he gets a phone call and I knew immediately what it was. And he looked at me and he's like, okay, me and Anil are coming right now. And then he puts the phone down. He's like, same problem. Let's go. And at that moment, every dumb horror movie went through my mind that I had watched. And I thought to myself, I wish I never watched any of this stuff. And it came just flashing through my mind and all the pictures and just the, uh, the you know, horrible content that was there just began to go through my mind. And I was like, I am so terrified right now. And all the younger students that were with me, I was like, I got to be brave for them, but I have no courage right now. So I stood up and I was like, okay, it's time to go. I picked up the Bible and I was like, Lord, I need some encouragement. And I opened up the Bible and opened up to Mark and it said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us through your name. So I said, okay, God, 
You gave me encouragement. Let's go. So we go over there. Me and the president, we're walking down these, just this, 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 this night road right there, going to the dormitory that's on the other side of the campus. We get there, and all of a sudden he gets another phone call, and I'm just there twiddling my fingers, wondering what to do. And I hear some people making some noise. So I go inside, just peek in, and there's the girls' dormitory. There are three rooms. Two of the rooms, they had people who were singing. One of the rooms had people that were in a circle. A lot, there were all the female students that were in a circle. And in the middle of the circle, there was an older college student and a high school student. And they were facing the wall. And so I was over here when I looked in. And I was like, oh, seems like everything's okay. Nothing seems to be the problem. And I could hear what they were saying. They were talking English. The older girl was saying, I want you to repeat after me Psalms 23. And so she said, the Lord is my shepherd. And the younger girl would say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The girl said, I shall not want. And they were going through all of Psalms 23. Everything seemed to be okay until they got to the part that said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Because as soon as the older girl said that, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, all of a sudden, the younger girl became silent. So the older girl said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And the younger girl said, thy... And the older girl said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The younger girl said, thy... thy And she began to stutter, and all of a sudden, she fell over backwards. The other girls jumped on her. She was kicking people off. I mean, there's details that I'm not going to share with you. But it was such a crazy, intense moment seeing what was taking place. Her body was contorting in unusual, um, you know, ways that are not human. And so all of a sudden, Dr. Doss gets off the phone. We both rush in. She's still kicking people off, and and she was just growling, and all of a sudden we knelt down by her, and we began to pray. And we began to pray, and the principal's wife also showed up, and we began to pray and lift her to Jesus, and all of a sudden she just contorted her body and then just relaxed. And as soon as she was done relaxing, not relaxing, as soon as she was done, when when she was relaxed, they got her back up, and she looked drained. She looked really drained and exhausted. They got her back up, and they began to ask, where did it come from? And she just sort of pointed towards the window, like that. And they began to make sure it wasn't still in her, and we prayed for her. And God did some amazing things. Even that girl gave her life in baptism, not too long after that. Amen? Even when I baptized her, I said, Lord, she is yours. She is your property now. I never forgot after that experience. That night, I went back to my dormitory where one of my friends, his name was Sammy, was right next to me, and he had gone to sleep. But everything was still so graphic in my mind. I couldn't go to sleep. And so I kept waking him up. I'm like, hey, Sammy, what's up? He's like, what? I'm sleeping. Okay. And I think about it. I'd wake him up again. I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) I'm sleeping. Okay. Hour later, I couldn't go to sleep. Hey, what are you going to do tomorrow? And it was just this moment that was really crazy for me. And so I went home, went back to USA, went back to California. I was like, what happened? What in the world took place? You see, like I understood the name of Jesus casting out this demon, but nothing else made sense. That whole experience was just on my mind the whole way back, and it was on my mind for two weeks straight. And I was really praying. I said, Lord, share with me what took place. And all of a sudden, God began to reveal something to me. You see, I began to study and I began to pray and God began to share with me that what was taking place was that an invitation for the Holy Spirit to be part of that experience was being rejected. 
And what do I mean by that? You know, Jesus says something very interesting about the Holy Spirit. He says these words. When I cast out, if I cast out demons by the power of God, then you know the Spirit of God has come upon you. In other words, Jesus is saying the active agent in casting out demons, in doing ministry, is the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit's called the comforter? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know what I know is very interesting? When you actually look in the sanctuary, now you can all be very, you have to be always very careful about symbolism, but what you do see in the Bible, in the most holy place, you do see a picture of the triune God there. You see symbols of the triune God in there. Jesus, the bread of life. The Father, the throne of righteousness, the Ten Commandments. And the Holy Spirit, the rod that budded. And it's so amazing because even when the rod that budded, there was a controversy of whether or not the Spirit of God was really in somebody. And so you begin to see this over and over again, this theme that the Holy Spirit is involved. In, he's the active agent in doing ministry. And God began to really lay something on my heart. And that was the Holy Spirit wasn't an active part of my own personal life. You see, when I got baptized, I marked the thing that said, yes, I believe that the Holy Spirit is God. Yes, I believe Jesus is God. Yes, I believe the Father is God. Yes, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. But I had no real experience with this thing. And God began to lead me down this path and show me that there was something very much missing from my life, something that was lacking, and it was the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I began to pray, and I began to say, Lord, I want you to start sharing with me more about the Holy Spirit. And as I began to pray and ask God to show me more about the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, great truths begin to open up. You know what's so amazing about the Holy Spirit? What is so amazing about the Holy Spirit is this idea that is presented in Scripture. Jesus says, I have many things to say to you about the Holy Spirit. You can't understand them now. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was revealed from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. But one of the reasons why his identity was not as clearly defined and articulated as it was in the New Testament was because the Jews were prone to polytheism. God had to be very careful how he unfolded his nature to the Jews. And as the Jews began to enter certain points of education, Jesus said, God has a son. And by the way, there is somebody else. And he began to explain towards the end of his life that there is, another part, there is another person out there and he is the Holy Spirit. God began to reveal slowly who the Holy Spirit was. The people were not ready for it. Anytime that any new knowledge of God would be available to the, the Jews, to the Israelites, they would begin to pervert it. And so God had to be very careful how he articulated who he was. And in time, the Holy Spirit began to be revealed. But you see him very active in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is one of the members of the triune picture of God. Now what is so amazing is this. There's a lot of teachings out there that are attacking the Holy Spirit. A lot of teachings that are attaching, that are attacking his identity. But ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament, did God ever command the children of Israel to build a temple to the wind? Yes or no? Yes or no? Of course no, right? Now, did God ever command the people of Israel to build a temple to the sun? S-U-N. Somebody just said yes. Did God ever command the children of Israel to build a temple to that burning ball of gas that's out in the sky? Yes or no? Of course not. 
In other words, God never commanded the children of Israel to build a temple to any active force of God, but rather to who? God himself. And if that is the case, Paul would have been blasphemous if the Holy Spirit was simply just a force of God and not God himself. God would have been, or Paul would have been blasphemous when he said, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen? If the Holy Spirit was simply a force, then Paul would have been blasphemous when he said, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But because the Holy Spirit is God, is why Paul could say, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know what also is so amazing? When you begin to understand this triune picture of God. You know in Hindu philosophy, they teach this idea because God is infinite, God is eternal, God is all-knowing, that any articulation by uh, infinite beings is impossible. Therefore, it's important to avoid any articulation or definition of who God really is. Therefore, idols are then set up as representations of the infinite God that they worship. But what is so interesting about this is that the triune picture of God answers that question. Can an infinite God be known by the universe, by created beings, by finite beings? Absolutely. When you think of the picture of God, you have God the Father representing the source and power of worship. You have Jesus representing the tangible picture of God and pointing to God the Father. And then you have the Holy Spirit that is dwelling in hearts of his created beings. And these three have set up this divine configuration, a divine stepladder to help finite beings grasp the infinite God of the universe. Amen. In fact, I love what one person says right here. If all were willing, all would be filled with the what? Spirit. Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen what? Spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, and spiritual what? Declension and death. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, the divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church, which would bring all other blessing in its train, is lacking, though offered in infinite plenitude. Notice what she says right here. When the Holy Spirit is a little matter talked about, when it's little appreciated, she says, for a certainty you can see spiritual death, spiritual declension, and spiritual drought. Do you know in Acts chapter 19, one day Paul walked up into a scene. The church of Ephesus had already been set up for five years. He gets there, and you know what his very first question is? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now let me ask you a question. Every time Paul did ministry, would, would that be his first question, yes or no? Is there any other recorded place that whenever Paul walked up into a scene, walked up to a church that was established, would he ask the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? No! This is the only time recorded in Scripture where he walks up to the church of Ephesus, where the Bible says there was 12 disciples established for five years. He walks into that situation, and his very first question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, he didn't just ask that question as a great introduction to who he was. He asked that question because he could tell something was not right. You see, the church of Ephesus had already been established for five years. Five years. And you know when he gets there, there's 12 disciples only. Only 12. And he's like, have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit? And you know what their response was? What's the Holy Spirit? And you know what Jesus, do you know what Paul begins to do? He begins then to explain the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens next? It's incredible. You read Acts chapter 19. It says within two years and with this group of 12 disciples, he then was able to preach the gospel to Asia Minor, all of Asia Minor within two years. You know why? Because now the Holy Spirit was part of that equation. 
the Holy Spirit began to enter into that experience and in that church's experience. You know, I have this qualm with churches that are not growing. I really believe this with my whole heart. There is no reason why any church should not be growing. Sometimes I go preach in different places. And literally, there is, I remember one time I was invited to preach at this place. One person that was there, one person I thought to myself, this is, there is no excuse for why this, these pews are empty. No excuse. And so I really began to pray and teach about the Holy Spirit. And you know what began to happen? God began to do wonderful things. You know what else we're told? Take your Bible, go to John chapter 16. This is amazing here when it comes to the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16. Please say amen if you're there. Look what the Bible says right here in John chapter 16. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your what? Now pay attention to the yellow highlighted part. This is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now let me ask you a question. In the yellow highlighted part, what word appears there more time than any other words? Uh. What word appears there more times? All you have to do is... Take your talent of reading, apply it here, and you're going to find the answer. What word appears there more than any other time? Say it again. Very good. Who's I? Jesus is speaking. Very good. You guys are on top of your game right here, right? I know every one of you guys went to sleep at 10 p.m. last night. Okay. Jesus is who? I, right? This is Jesus speaking here. Don't miss this point. If I go away, notice what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Who's I again? What word appears there next to the word I? What word appears there the most amount of times besides the word I? In the yellow highlighted part. So what word appears there besides the word I the most number of times? Let's count it together, children. <laughs> Let's count it together. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to you. You can include the word your there. Advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to. Oh, my goodness. But if I depart, I will send him to. Oh, wow. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's I? Who's you? Yes, it's you, right? Now notice, very good. Notice this part. Don't miss this point. Notice what Jesus is saying right here. When he goes, he is going to send the Holy Spirit to who? You. That's right. You, me, right? Us. Now, who is he sending the Holy Spirit to? You. Don't forget that word, okay? Right? Let's put it back in the equation. Now you're going to see something. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And who's you? Us. But if I, uh, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to who? Who's you? Notice this. And when he has come, who is he coming to? Notice this. He will convict the world. Do you get it? In other words, when the Holy Spirit enters into you individually, the world will be convicted. 
The Bible isn't saying when the Holy Spirit comes to the whole world. The Bible is saying when the Holy Spirit comes to you individually, the world will be convicted. You see, when the Bible is saying the gospel shall be preached to the whole world, you want to know what the solution is to that dilemma? It's when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And when the Holy Spirit comes to you, the world will be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the answer to the dilemma. Before the second coming of Christ, there must be a second coming of the Holy Spirit. And this second coming is called the latter rain. This is what Jesus wants to do for all his people. Can you say amen to that? God is doing amazing things, and he wants to pour out his spirit in incredible ways. And when the spirit of God falls upon people, the most unusual things will take place. You know, there was a man by the name of Dwight L. Moody, powerful preacher, preached about the Holy Spirit. Wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, but he was a mighty man of God and a mighty man of scriptures. One day, he would be going to this place and that place. Great revivals would take place. But this man was so filled with the Holy Spirit that the most unusual things would take place. He records in one of his diaries that one day he was sitting down on a train. He was just sitting down on a train. As he was sitting down on his train, there was a young man who was just staring at him. And the young man was just looking at him. And just kept looking at him. And then just kept looking at him. And then he walks up right up to Dwight L. Moody. And Dwight L. Moody is thinking, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? He walks right up to him and he says, sir, I don't know who you are. And you don't know who I am. But your very presence convicts me of sin. When the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in somebody's heart, the most amazing things will begin to take place. And I begin to pray and I also begin to repent that I was trying to live a Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when I begin to repent, I say, Lord, forgive me for trying to be a Christian witness without the power of God. Relying so much upon my own strength. But when I begin to pray and ask God to attend to my talents, all of a sudden some of the most unusual things begin to take place. The ministry begin to change. There was more power to preaching, more power to witnessing. Because you want to know my witnessing consisted of? I'd get into altercations with Mormons at the supermarket. That was witnessing. I never forgot one day I was going through this pharmacy and I was like, I have a glow. And I never forgot I was so afraid of giving this glow. I went through the drive-thru. And as soon as the lady, lady handed me the medication, I was like, here, and I took off. I actually took off. Like, I sped out of there. Okay? And this was my witnessing. But when I began to pray and I said, Lord, I need the Holy Spirit to start attending me in my witnessing, all of a sudden, some of the most amazing things begin to take place. You know what is so amazing? That every prayer offered for the Holy Spirit is being saved up. You're like, what do you mean by that? This is one of the most amazing quotes you could ever read right here. There it is. When the third angel's message shall go forth with a loud voice, the whole earth shall be lighted with his glory. The Holy Spirit will be poured upon his people. The revenue of glory has been, what's that next word? Accumulated. Do you know what the word accumulating means? It means saved up for the work of this closing work of the third angel's message. The prayers that have been ascending for the fulfillment of the promise, the descent of the Holy Spirit, not one has been what? Lost. Each prayer has been, what's that next word? Accumulating, ready to overflow and pour forth the healing flood of heavenly influences and accumulated light all over the world. Now just think to yourself, ladies and gentlemen, how many people have been praying for the Holy Spirit? How many people have been praying for the latter rain? Just think to yourself about the early disciples. Yeah, they had the early rain, but they were praying also for the fulfillment, the greater fulfillment. And many of those prayers 
eventually went unanswered. Imagine the reformers praying for the Holy Spirit. All of those prayers, none of them have been lost. Now imagine the early church, the pioneers, Ellen White, praying for the descent of the Holy Spirit. Every one of those things, every one of those prayers has just been added up in this heavenly bank account. His heavenly bank account, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and God is waiting to unleash the answers to all these prayers. 2,000 years of praying for the Holy Spirit. 2,000 years of praying for the latter rain. 2,000 years of praying this mighty prayer, asking God, 2,000 years of praying for this. And you can be the recipient. You can be the recipients of this power that God is waiting to pour out. You can be the recipients. Imagine that. You could be the answers to Ellen White's prayers for the Holy Spirit, the latter rain. You could be the answers to the prayers of the reformers who were praying for the Spirit of God in their day. Not one has been lost. Imagine that, that you could be the recipient. God is waiting to pour it upon somebody. Imagine the power, and when he comes, the world will be convicted. God is not waiting for an entire church to be converted. It'll never happen. God is not waiting for the world to be converted. It's not going to happen. He is waiting for people enough people who are willing to say, God, we don't want to do it ourselves anymore. We want the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you know what you're going to start experiencing as you start praying for the Holy Spirit? You're going to start experiencing victory, uninter uninterrupted victory. And as you continue to pray, you're going to struggle. But as you continue to pray, all of a sudden, you'll understand more and more of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit wants to reveal Himself. He is the most misunderstood part of the Godhead. And at the end of time, he is going to reveal himself in amazing ways. The Bible says, the Spirit, when he comes, he will guide you to all truth. And the Spirit has been the Spirit behind the remnant church, revealing the truth of God that has been lost. God is waiting to pour out all these spirits, all these prayers, waiting to pour out all this that has been just gathering and accumulating for so long. You know what we're told in councils? We're told that when the Spirit begins to fall, young children will start witnessing for God. We're told illiterate disciples will begin to preach and befuddle the most sophisticated of men. We're told that people who've been given the great controversy, they're going to be awakened as the events begin to unfold. We're told that God's people, their face will begin to light up and shine as they begin to share the power of the third angel's message. God is waiting to pour out his spirit. He is waiting for people to be open and people who are willing to pray and yearn and struggle for this great gift. You're wondering, why is there spiritual death in my life? Why is there spiritual declension in my church? Why is there spiritual drought here? You have your answer. You have your answer. 2,000 years, God has been waiting. He has been waiting for a group of people who are willing to be recipients of the Holy Spirit. 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Not one has been lost. Can you imagine the thousands, maybe the millions of people who have been praying for the Holy Spirit? And you could be recipients of that today. And begin a life with the Spirit in your heart and in your life. 
And maybe you're a person today who's thinking to yourself, God, I don't want to do it by myself anymore. God is inviting you to allow the Spirit in. God is inviting you to allow the Holy Spirit to be part of your ministry. Whatever you're called to do, imagine that. Imagine a group of people so filled with the Holy Spirit. The world will be convicted. I'm going to make a very simple appeal. And that is, if you would like to start hungering and thirsting for the Spirit of God, I'm going to invite you up to the front again. If it's your desire, you say, Lord, I want to be a recipient of the Holy Spirit. I want to be a recipient of the latter rain. It's these times that God is calling us to make decisions, earnest decisions, sincere decisions for the Holy Spirit. Imagine this, a group of people who begin to pray for the Holy Spirit. Imagine if Southern Adventist University began praying for the Holy Spirit. This one university could change the whole world. Praying for the power of God. Praying for the Holy Spirit. If you're coming up here, what you're saying is, God, I want to make a commitment. I'm going to start praying for the Holy Spirit. You know, Ellen White tells us that we should start gathering in groups. Young people should start gathering in groups and praying for the Holy Spirit to tell them what to do. You will find God blessing you when you begin to pray for the Holy Spirit. Not one prayer has been lost. Not one. Not one. And you could be the recipients of those prayers. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the great gift that you gave to this world, which was your son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great gift that you have given to us, the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for the great gift you have given to us, which is a heart to love God. Father in heaven, we are praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit not a temporary experience, but one that is long-term, one that will be part of experience day in and day out. Lord, we pray that you'd remind us to pray every day to earnestly, earnestly supplicate the throne for the spirit of truth. Fill us, God. We want to be those recipients of 2,000 years of prayers for the spirit of God. Please, Jesus, see this group of people. Bless us. Pour out the Holy Spirit upon us. Give us a hunger and thirst to study this out, to make this part of our personal experience and to become greater witnesses for you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.